Welcome back to Soul Back. This is the R&B Podcast. Kyle here, and I'm back with Ed, who just came back from lining up at Popeyes for three hours. <laughs> oh my god. Yes, your boy's here. Yes, I tried the sandwich. No, I didn't line up for Popeyes because I have integrity player. But shout out to my man, Daniel, my co-worker who hooked me up with a sandwich. He was out. The man had to go to like two or three Popeyes to get it, but good for him. <laughs> well, Ed, I was going to actually put this as one of our play of pleases, but we've got a bunch today. So I'm just going to put it out here now because I had seen it on Facebook. Apparently, because of these long lineups, people have been buying the Popeye sandwiches in bulk and selling them outside the restaurant for 20 bucks a piece. Yes, player. It's just like the old school days where you would... See, you youngins don't realize this, but there was a time before album leaks that you would be on the street and people would try to sell you albums before they dropped. I remember, I think it was Puff's either his first or second album. Before it dropped, someone was said, oh, I got the leak to that new Puff, whatever it was. I don't know if it was No Way Out or the second one. I think it was the second one. Oh, I got it. Just give me six bucks and I'll give it to you on this burned disc. Now the risk you take is you could put in that disc and it could be Puff's first album or it could be blank or it could be the real thing. So these are the things we had to go through before the internet era. It's just, <laughs> as trifling as trying to get a chicken sandwich. $20. But hey, that's America for you. Free markets Look right Look at up. America. Oh my gosh. <laughs> The land of getting oh, over. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, Ed, let's get into R&B this week. We got a bunch to talk about, but let's get into our weekly fan shout-out here. And, Ed, I know you'll be very excited about this one. Can we give a shout-out to the B5 fans? <laughs> okay, if we have to. Well, Ed, as you know, on a weekly basis, we talk R&B, and occasionally we talk about B5, and the person that's not on the podcast today... Likes to throw jabs at the group for unknown reasons. But uh, the B5 fans got a hold of this. They listened to the podcast and they were not happy with us, Ed. Well, listen, I'm never happy with that other guy anyway. But it's funny because I understand the need to stand for your favorites. But I had no idea that the B5 contingent was so strong in their love for these little boys. For like They had like two songs that I remember. And there you have it. But, hey, man, Ed, they said something along the lines of, who is the Soulback Podcast anyway? I've never heard of them. Well, Ed, they listened. They listened to the whole thing, and they commented. That's what we want, right? (laughs) I love when people are like, who are you guys? Let me listen to you for an hour, comment on it, and share the link. I hope everybody has as much hate in their heart as you do for us because you're helping us get the word out. So, hi, haters. Thanks so much for sharing. But we got to reward the B5 fans, so I am currently working on, and this might be an exclusive, I'm going to bring B5 on the Soulback podcast. You just watch. Listen, no, I'm actually cool with it. I have no beef, and even Tom, I doubt, has beef with B5. I think Tom's kind of argument was, um, what has B5 done recently to deserve this level of stand-up? And maybe we can bring him on and find out. I don't know. A thousand percent. Shoutouts to B5. Hope you guys do well on the tour. Um, And let's talk about some recent events here. Missy Elliott accepted her Michael Jackson Vanguard Award at the VMAs. Uh, Conveniently, 
MTV removed the Michael Jackson name from the award, but good on Missy for continuing to shout out Mike during her whole speech. But she performed there as well, Ed. What did you think of the performance? Absolutely loved it. And you know you're talking to probably the biggest Missy stand that you'll find. As I said, I've been down since way before the hype. Been very happy to see her grow into the legendary artist that she's become. And for an artist who's had a quote-unquote layover, for, I mean, what, it's been well over 10 years since we've had an album from her, even though she's been somewhat consistent in her writing, producing, and even making appearances. For her to go out and do that level of performing, I thought it was pretty good. It was a, And it only scratched the surface of the hit she had. She went through maybe five or six songs. I could have named seven or eight more that we could have heard. So I love the performance. Great throwback. And a long overdue tribute to one of the pioneers of both hip-hop and R&B. Yep, unfortunately her EP wasn't that great, but I think you'll disagree. Uh, no, I think it was okay. I think a lot of fans just went into this wanting a lot. And you have to realize, and I noticed this with the, not the most recent Nas album, but the Nas EP that came out that Kanye did last year. We're at a point where our legends, those of us who kind of came up in 90s and even early 2000s, there are artists we consider legends that this current generation of fans, they never heard their music. They don't go back and listen to the old stuff. So some people heard this Missy EP and was like, this is the first Missy album they've ever heard. Shout out to, I think my man William over on the Soul and Stereo Cypher. He said this was his first Missy album. And he went back and listened to it and was like, eh, I mean, I guess. He didn't see the greatness in it because... You hear about these artists being so legendary, and then this is the first thing you hear. Put it like this, Kyle. If you are a new R&B fan, and you have heard about how great Usher is, and you have never gone back to listen to any Usher album, you just hear how he's so great, and the only Usher album you ever heard was the Usher A album, wouldn't you be like, um, I don't see the big deal with this person? And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of what <laughs> a lot of fans were having with Missy. But going back to the EP, I thought it was okay for four songs. There were two songs I liked, one song I didn't really like, and one song that was okay. It's just kind of what it is. It was a good sampling of what she brings as far as being able to bounce between R&B and hip-hop and Miami bass and a little bit of trap and a little bit more classic doo-wop and R&B. So I thought it was a great showcase of what she can do. Not really a great showcase of her level of talent. So, you know, it was what it was. I'm always happy to get new Missy music, though. Yeah, I think one comment that I found really interesting was that the fans, or not even the fans, but social media in general, was commenting on and asking why Missy was following the trends with the skirt skirts and all the sound effects. But, Ed, she was like the originator of that when she first came out. So... It's just kind of interesting that people have kind of forgot that. It's hilarious to me. Who was saying beep, beep, who got the keys to the Jeep? And ficky, 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 he, 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 how? Like, that was all Missy in, like, when I was in high school. This was 20 years before the Migos were in the futures of the game were doing it and embarrassing themselves. Missy beat you to the punch. So, I'm not mad at her for doing it. It's not stealing someone's sound or, oh, why is she doing what the young people doing? Trust me, they're doing what she already did. It's okay. Yeah. So, 
Glad to see Missy back. Hopefully we get a full-length project out of this. But, Ed, we've got some full-length projects to talk about here. We do. Uh, we have one full-length project that came out a few months back, and Sea Breezy is set to release a deluxe oh, version God. of that album. So he dropped 30-something songs, and he's adding another 10 to your playlist, Ed. Listen, play, come on now. If you got 10 sacks of crap, 10 sacks of crap that's been sitting out in the summer sun, and it smells like death. Do you think that that pile of crap is going to get better if you put another 20 piles, 20 pounds on that pile? Or is it just going to get bigger and stinkier? Because that's what we are setting up to have. A big stinky summer, thanks to Cousin Chris. Why can't we just stop? Well, these 10 songs might bring him to platinum status. So he's playing the game right, Ed. Let him be. Oh, unfortunately, he is playing the game right. And that's what this is, y'all. It is a game. As we talk about here on the on the Soulback podcast, we talk about the legacy of albums and artists who have put together these strong bodies of work that will forever define their career. That ain't what Cousin Chris is doing. Cousin Chris is getting a whole bunch of songs, throwing them out there on the internet, and trying to get y'all to stream them. Because that is the way to go platinum these days. And the more material he can go, he can throw out, that's more stuff for y'all to stream, whether it's good or not. It's not about a body of work being good. It's about flooding the game with stuff so you will continue to click and continue to rise up his sales. <sighs> I'm tired. <sighs> well, Ed, we also we, we might have to give C. Breezy the soul backtrack of the day for no guidance because that's his biggest single since Loyal. Not even Loyal. Look at me now, actually. Yes, and have you heard the song? It is not good. Well, no one said anything about that. We just celebrate Drizzy and Breezy, Ed. Well, we you we can. Do. that's what you can do. But as for me and my house, I'm over here smelling the funk of this 25-pound sack of garbage that's been sitting on my stoop for, for the past summer. Get it off. I'm be done with it. <laughs> so out of those 10, how many do you think will be actually good? Negative two. I mean, look at the track oh. record from the last album. There were, what, 30-something songs? I would say yep. maybe five were listenable. And to this day, the only one I had listened to continuously is, what was it called? Sorry Enough? Like, that one's okay. With the grinding beat? Yes, that one I liked. And then the the one, the, um, the Sean East one was okay. It's not really my style, but, you know, I give them... Right. He gets an A for effort of that one, but what? So you got two out of 38? That's adding another <laughs> 40 to it? Oh, my goodness. Well, Ed, if he if he's 10 for 10 on this one, I guess he adds up to about 12 out of 40. Is that a pass? That's not a pass, though, is it? <laughs> that is not a pass, and I can guarantee you he won't get 10 out of 10 with these new ones. Yeah. But, Ed, if you're a teacher, right, and a student comes up to you and he's failing for most of the semester, but he aces his final. Aren't you going to pass him for that? No, not if you fail the entire year and you get a C on your final. You still suck. <laughs> Damn. You are a rough and tough teacher. But, Ed, let's move on from Breezy and talk about some other projects. Um, her has re-released her EPs and combined them once again. That tactic oh, got her a Grammy last year she's done it once again added a couple of new records to it racks being one of them i thought that was her official first single but 
Turns out it's just an EP song. Ed, what is this approach? I don't get it. Well, it's part of the game, yo, is what we saw again, what we just talked about with Cousin Chris. It's not about creating albums anymore. These are just tactics to boost up streams and to, in, in her case, she's basically kind of consolidating these random Lucys so that she can present them as albums come award show time or whatever. Because again, we've seen her be nominated and awarded and lauded for these EPs that are just a collection of super old songs. And we're seeing that again. I don't know where this mysterious album is. And don't get me wrong, I am a big her fan and supporter, as you are too. So we want to see new material and we want to hear some good stuff. But it's just... As much as I like her, I feel like we're feeling a little too repetitive here, Blair. Like, the songs... I did like Racks a lot, but the songs are very similar. The marketing and push is pretty much the same. It's just... And she's been doing this for two years, and it's funny because I was talking over on the Soul and Stereo Cypher. If you're not on that, you know what to do. Go to Facebook, type in Soul and Stereo Cypher, join us there for some combo. But... Talking to some members of the Cypher there last week, and they were kind of surprised. Huh, she's only been out two years. It seems like she's been out like five or six years because she has dropped so much material constantly over the past two years that it's kind of getting like she's flooding the game. I worry that she's overextending her reach, and by the time she does give us her album, unless it's completely different than what we've gotten, people are going to tune out because they're a little burnt out. Yeah, I think one thing that comes to mind when it comes to these album or project releases, I think her team is trying to set her up for a big debut release. And I think in order to do that, their mindset is that she has to have a boot up type of record like Ella May, the success that that brought to the table. That allowed Ella to drop her debut. But as I think it mo- about it more and more, her is not th- that type of artist. She doesn't need... I mean, of course, it would be nice to have a number one single, but Ella and her are two different artists, so you can't really put that approach to mind when you're releasing her's project. Exactly. Shout out to my man Gustav in the Cypher, who was kind of leading that conversation as well. I-, I agree with both of you. I think that it comes to a label decision where they're looking for that one big breakout record, and until they get that, they just keep gathering up these looses and throwing them together and be like, okay, we got this new project for y'all to check out. No, it's not new. And in the meantime, they're scrambling to get this single. And that's why I thought, I think for their credit, they thought Rax was going to do it. Again, I like Rax. They threw on YBN Corday, who was a relatively new artist, fresh voice. They actually has some buzz behind him. And he's pretty good, by the way. So that was a good way to kind of push her to mainstream radio. Didn't quite work. Maybe it's, no, time isn't up on that song. Maybe it will pick up. But that didn't really do it. And I think that they keep waiting for this big breakout single. Her, as great as she is, I don't really see that coming from her. Now, maybe she will be. Some of our, the most legendary R&B artists of all time never had a number one or even top ten single. But I know this is a different marketplace, so as that hunt for this elusive hit mega hit single continues, I think we're going to have these start and stop projects for her, and I just worry that her once ravenous fan base is going to get kind of burned out. 
Yeah, but here's something funny. I read it from Missy, and I know you participated in Missy's hashtag Ask Missy uh, questionnaire that she was doing the other day. Somebody asked her what her favorite song of 2019 was, and she said Focus by her. Ed, didn't that come out like three years ago? Yes, it came out three years ago. Last year, when everybody was up on Booed Up, as you recall, we had that on our top R&B list like the year prior or the year before that. So it just shows how a lot of these very stale songs continue to kind of linger around in this social media climate because there's no no 106 in part for it to be on pushed in our face for 24-7. So you just kind of stumble upon a song and get on it when you get on it. So that's a good thing, but then again, it's a bad thing because it's hard for these artists to kind of lock down, okay, this is your hit that's going to carry us through the song. Because it might not catch on through the summer. Very weird times we live in. Ed, it's funny you bring up 106 in part. Because I think about it now. That program really messed up people's perspective on who was big and who wasn't. And I'm, and I'm speaking to the B5 fans in particular. Yes, B5 was all over 106 in park. Cherish was all over 106 in park. Them franchise boys, they were all over 106 in park. But then when you look at them on the Billboard charts, they're nowhere to be found. So I think that that program, even though it created fan bases, that is not a good indicator of what's hot and what's not in these streets. Well, and that's true. And not to discredit it, because I think that, honestly, we need a program like that. There is some misconceptions that came with that. If you looked at 106 back in 2002, 2003, like I looked at you would think that B2K was bigger than freaking Michael Jackson. They were that huge. B2K has maybe one number one hit. They have like maybe one platinum record. Maybe. Like they did okay. And of course a platinum record now is a much bigger deal than it was in 2002. Because you can have a halfway decent single and go platinum. So when you look at the sales as far as the actual charting of some of these songs... Weren't nearly as big as you would think. Were they successful? No question. But there were a lot of times when we saw artists on TV shoved in our faces that were a whole lot bigger in theory than they were in practice. And did Cherish, them franchise boys, B5, all of them, not quite as big as 106 made you to believe. Right. So that confirms it. I guess everyone was just watching 106 in Park when uh, B5 was coming out, and that that's the cause of this massive uh, backlash against us. But it's all good. We'll oh, get yeah. them on the podcast. <laughs> I guess. I mean, B5 could be sitting right here in my office right now, and I would be like, who are these five children? I have no idea what B5 even looks like. All right. Well, Ed, uh, Gallant, I know you love him. He uh, dropped yes. a new record that sounds like it could have been played on 106 in Park back in the day, Ed. This song, it makes me want to braid my hair, rock some baggy jeans, uh, wear a Superman belt, and do my one-two step. Because Sleep On It, Ed, it sounds like it came from that era. First of all, if you come up in here with cornrows and baggy jeans and a Superman (laughs) belt, I'm going to be the first one to shove you down a flight of steps. Good Lord. Anyway, I love going. I feel like every few weeks I get on this podcast and just laud the praises of Galant. And I will keep doing it until y'all stop sleeping. You want to yell about people not bringing back R&B. And we talk about, oh, why don't we have any younger artists that are giving the R&B that we love. And because you aren't listening, 
Gallant has a song called Sleep On It, and you're sleeping on it. Wake up. It's a tremendous song. He's a tremendous vocalist. I love his falsetto. I love his approach. He's a great songwriter as well. This is just yet another fantastic song for him. Can't wait for him to give us a new project because he almost always delivers. Love this joint. And of course, Genuine is featured in the video, which excited a lot of people. And Ed, we're not going to touch on it too much, but we were trying to figure out if Genuine is considered underrated or overrated when we look at R&B and, and, and his legacy. And Ed, I think you brought up the best point in that in some aspects he's underrated because people might not appreciate all that he's done. But he might be also overrated because let's be honest, from the senior onwards, he had some decent albums, but none that people really remember. Exactly, player. Just look at it. We just had this conversation about 106 and Park and perception. And that's even today when you see all these think pieces about how so-and-so is changing the culture of music. And it's like, that dude been out six months. How is he changing the culture of music? Calm down, think piece man. But when it comes to genuine, I think that though there is a section of fans who write him off as a one-hit wonder. Because they're like, oh, that's the guy that did Pony. Okay, he did a lot more than Pony, and he actually was extremely successful. But when we look at that success, it was really pretty limited from pretty much 97 to 2001. So, I mean, basically, the time I was in college was his peak. But he had a career, as you know, well after that, that was not nearly as successful as that three or four year peak. So, when we talk about Genuine's kind of totality of a career, I think some fans do overrate it because we kind of shut down after that 2001 album, which I do love. Um, what was that one? Life? Yeah. Yep. Love that album. But after that, it gets really shaky. And by the time we get to those Elgin albums, mm-mm. so he's a very interesting piece where sometimes he doesn't get enough credit. Sometimes he gets a little bit too much. Of course, we love him. We still love Genuine. We keep hoping for him to come back. He's actually, when you think about it, just like your boys Tyrese and Tank, an artist that had their glory days. Unfortunately, their days without glory seem to outweigh their best days, but we just keep hoping for them to return to that glory because we remember how good they were when they were good. Yep. And in those jeans, Ed, that's not a good song. I don't care how you put it. No. I don't (laughs) care who hypes that song. It is not good. Thank you. We agree. All right. Uh, a couple more projects I want to talk talk about. Justine Sky dropped her EP, um, her independent project. Bear with me. First of all, can we give a Justine uh, Justine Sky shadow for looking good? Oh my God, no! But I mean, I, you will anyway. So go ahead and do your thing. So shoutouts to Justine Sky for being one of the baddest in the game. But bear with me, Ed, Ugh. which has a very nice cover. Did you like this Jeez. project? Because I thought it was just all right. I thought it was a little better than All Right. Her last one was, I think, Pandemonium, maybe? The last one I didn't really enjoy. I thought this one was more along the right track. And it's not, don't get me wrong, I doubt it ends up on my best albums of the year list. But I like the direction. It's an album that, well, EP, that balances the line between kind of going in a current trendy direction, but also kind of retaining the R&B essentials as well. So it doesn't, she's not trapping through the whole thing, but it also doesn't sound like something that came out in 1994. 
it sounds current, but I feel like this was the makings of a solid album. If she had a couple of like really blockbuster songs to throw on this, she'd have a pretty good album on her hands. But right now, it's just kind of like some a decent collection of album cuts. So it's not at all bad. A little forgettable, but I wouldn't say it was bad. Yeah, it's just interesting because Justine's been out for a minute, and I think she's still trying to find her sound. Uh, luckily for her, she's still young, so I think she still has a little bit of time left uh, before we can write her off. She has a big following on social media, mm-hmm. but... It's interesting to see how many of those people actually follow her for the music or if they're just like me and they follow her because she looks good. Well, there's a bunch of creepers like you on the internet, but you know, <laughs> that's what the block button is for. Fair enough. <laughs> um, Ed, I've got two projects that Tom and I talked about last week and I don't know how much you want to talk about, but Life Jennings and Raphael Sadiq both pro- uh, put out projects last week. Yeah, and I checked out both and I'll be gladly to chat about them a little bit. Life, as many know, I'm a huge Life fan. Um, I thought this album was okay. It wasn't, it's by far not his best project, but I think my biggest beef with it is it was a little lengthy, and some of those collabos were weird, player. He, he, he's got a song with, with, with Boosie on it, and I'm like, what is this? Then he's got the song where he's like comparing sex to slavery. I'm like, player, what are wow. we doing? Yes, take that Amistad slave stuff somewhere. That is no. That ain't gonna work in 2019, dog. But overall, there are some good Life Jennings-ish style records. And the thing that I love about Life is he has a great knack for taking kind of situations that we deal with day to day and just making songs about them. He's got this song about the guys like... I think we're all getting to the point now where we're looking back and having high school reunions. And there were people that in high school that were like the most desirable and the most attractive. And now you look at their social media page and they are the least. And I'm not just saying looks, but attitude and personality. And they're just terrible people. But then those people who were kind of picked on and looked at as not attractive. A lot of those people now are doing very well for themselves. And he has a song about that. And I thought that was really cool. Life Jennings has a great knack for taking those, for lack of a better term, life situations and turning music around it and making very good commentary. So it's a lot of that. It's also a lot of weirdness. So it's kind of a mixed bag, but not the album was okay. And Ed, I'd like to take this time to give our girl Cassandra Jordan a shout out. She's a massive Tank fan and I know Tank had a song on this project and he sounds pretty good on it. So there's your shout out, Cassandra. Yeah, shout out to my girl, and I'm actually saying something nice about Tank, so y'all can leave me alone. I did like that song as well. Yep. What about Raphael? Oh, yes, Raphael, almost forgot. This album, Jimmy Lee, is one that was not expected as far as the sound. It's very dark. It's kind of politically leaning. It's really an album that talks about the sign of the time, so it's... An album that's not, if you're looking for some old school Tony, Tony, Tony sound and stuff, that ain't going to be it. So I can understand a lot of people being like, oh, I don't really get this one. Or I don't really like this one because it's unlike the single, which is very kind of a little bit more friendly, ear friendly, so to speak. The topics on it get really political and really tough. I think I read that it was even kind of inspired by his brother who was going through maybe addiction. His brother was going through something at the time. And that kind of inspired the direction of this album. So it's very personal. 
But again, very dark. I appreciated its sound. I think it's a pretty solid album, but I definitely would understand if fans had little trouble accessing that one. Right. Now, Ed, you've spoken for almost 30 minutes about these new projects, and you've been pretty positive about it all. Before we get into the negative stuff, we got to bring in our special guest for the week. So guys, grab your popcorn and your soda, because our special guest is coming in. And like I said, every week we try to bring in someone special, someone who has brought soul back. And Ed, I'm really excited about this one. He honestly was one of the key people that influenced you know, the music that I liked growing up. Funny enough, I was just listening to Brian McKnight's Shoulda, Woulda, Coulda, one of the saddest songs of all time earlier. But we have Harvey Mason Jr. on the podcast. What's going on, Harvey? Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Harvey, before we get started, I got to ask, in your prime, who wins in a three-point shootout? You, Steve Kerr, Sean Elliott, or Judd Butchler? Oh, my God. That's not even <laughs> That's not even close. Come on. Of course it's me. You know that. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Steve Kerr beats everybody at, at everything at all times. <laughs> wow. At all times. I love at all that. times. Funny. Back then and now. Wow. <laughs> so we want to get started. We asked this to our guests, and um, I think you have a pretty interesting story behind this one. But, but we, we always like to ask guests, uh, what are some R&B albums that influenced or impacted them growing up? And I want to hear from you, but I know one that actually impacted your career was Joe's All That I Am album, from what I understand. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, I would say even before that, though, it was... Quincy Jones, it was um, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder. Um, there's so many great records. I can't even probably think of all of them right now. But the Joe record was special because at the time I started my producing career, an A&R person who was, I guess, kind of co-A&Ring that record or had worked on that record in some capacity had a copy of it. And I think that was Joe's first record. And um, I was pitching this A&R person my songs and said, you got to cut my songs on your artists. And he took me into his office and he said, play me your best song. And I played him my best song. And then he played me a song off of Joe's record. And he said, which did you like better? Do you like Joe's song better or your song? I said, I like Joe's song. It was, it was definitely better. And he said, what was better about it? I said, well, the production, the, you know, the vocals were better and the lyrics were, were slightly better and just kind of the mix was better. And he says, okay, well, until your music is better in all those categories and that Joe song, don't come back to my office. <laughs> so wow. that was the impact that that record had on me. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah, and so I went back to my to my studio and just kind of started ripping apart that record and figuring out what it was about a lot of the songs on that album that made it as good as it was. And it was just a lot of little details, you know, the way the drums were program the sounds that they chose the patterns that they used just the way they did vocals the harmonies kind of everything was stuff that i learned and before that i was also studying albums that i liked by babyface and, and teddy riley and Devonte swing and, and i'll be sure all those type of people were making music back then that i really loved but it was the joe record that i really got compared to as far as my demo was concerned and it was that record that i really really went all the way in and studied how they made it and um basically took about four or five six months to rework what i thought were good songs 
uh, and comparing them to that record. And I went back to the A&R guy and I played him my new songs after I think it was five or six months. And I had made huge strides in improving my production and my songwriting and just engineering and mixing everything. And so when I played it for the guy, he said, yeah, you did it. You figured it out. He said, that's much better. And he uh, hired me on the spot to do a remix for one of his artists on Motown Records. And I think I got $2,000 or $1,500. And I thought that was like <laughs> the greatest day ever. So <laughs> that was it. That's how we got started. I love, I love that story of kind of reinvention. And along that line of reinvention, some of our listeners might not even realize that you spent some time with Dark Child. And during that time, you work with like Michael Jackson, Tony Braxton, Whitney, these legends, and you are able to kind of take these established artists and give them something new. So talk a little bit about how you were able to bring a new sound to the table for these established legendary voices to give them something new for a new generation. Right. Well, I started working with Rodney and Dark Child, I think in 97, 98, somewhere around that area. And I've been producing records before that on my own. I had a couple songs that I'd written. One in particular was a Brandy song that Rodney had heard and asked me if I would come work with him on the Brandy record. And uh, originally it was just the song that I had written that he was interested in. But when I got there, he said, oh, I love what you're doing. Why don't you help me with some other stuff? And at that time, I was actually using Pro Tools. And I think I was one of the early adapters or adopters of Pro Tools and, uh, you know, a lot of people were using it for radio and television, but not a lot of people were using it to make records on. So when I showed up with my computer, people were like, what are you going to do with that thing? And, and <laughs> Rodney took a liking to it, and, and we got along really well, and I really loved what he was doing on a production and songwriting level, and he really respected, I think, what I was doing on some production and pro tools and writing and stuff. So we we kind of got together in that capacity. And then to answer your question, we went on kind of a crazy tear of working with some amazing people. and. I have to credit Rodney with, uh, you know, bringing a lot of that freshness to what they were doing. He was on a really, uh, in a great space creatively and just doing really, really unique and new things. Um, and I like to hope that I added something to that equation and together and along with his brother and another guy, LaShawn Daniels, we had a couple of years of doing just great records for some really special artists. I was so lucky and so fortunate to be in that spot, you know, the Whitney Houston stuff, and like you said, Michael Jackson and Destiny's Child, Tony Braxton. So we had a great run and we had a lot of fun. It was a great time in music. It was a great time to be around those talented guys. And I've said it in other interviews before, but that was definitely a huge building block for me in my career learning, um, how to make great records. I learned a lot from Rodney about what he did to make the hit records that he made. Uh, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, I observed how he ran his business. I observed how he uh, interacted with artists and executives. And uh, there was a, a lot of great things there. And there were some things that I saw that I maybe wanted to do differently when I kind of got into my own spot. So I took a combination of all those things and, and uh, worked with him for about two years and, always thankful for that opportunity because it was a great time and music and a great time for me. Of course, no doubt. And one thing that that led to was your work with the underdogs. And I don't know if you know this, but we are joined on this podcast by the biggest underdog Stan ever, my man, Kyle. <laughs> so Kyle, tell us what you love about what they brought to the game. I mean, it was strong production, strong songwriting, strong vocals. And let me tell you, Harvey, one of my favorite things about the underdogs was the structure of the songs. You know, you would have your verse, you would have your hook, verse, hook, 
bridge. And then what the underdogs did that I really loved, and this might be a nerdy question, but it was like at the end of the song, you guys would have a little, I don't know what you would call it, like a second chorus or like a little jingle at the end, like I can yep. name O as an example or Change Me by Ruben Studdard. Just talk right. about that part of the song. What is What was that all about? We called that the tag, at least that's what we would say it was called. I don't know what it would be technically called, but we just called it the tag. Right. And it was a section that was after the last chorus and something that we wanted to fade out on. And it's something that we loved and, and something we thought the listener would want to end the song on. And what's funny is a lot of people didn't like, not listeners, but executives didn't like it. Like I remember Clive Davis would always get rid of our tags because he hated them. He said, "That's you don't want to leave the listener with something that's not the chorus. And of course, Clive being the amazing record man that he is and respecting him as much as we did, we would chop the tags off of the songs that Clive was putting out. And I must say it worked a lot of times because Clive had a lot of hits and we had a lot of success together, but it was a different strategy from what was kind of the norm because as Clive said, the chorus is your strongest and most catchy part of the song and you want to leave the listener with that part of the song. So it was a little bit counterintuitive to that strategy, but is what we like to do and we were being creative and we were having fun. So we would usually be in the studio, the chorus would be playing and one of us would be on the keyboard and somebody would be singing and we'd just kind of like start vamping on this outro section and so we would start singing a loop and we would just like have so much fun. I remember jumping around and saying, yeah, that's it, that's it, do that again. And then we'd record <laughs> it and we'd be like, that's our tag, there you go. And we started doing it on, on a lot of our songs. It was just something that we loved and something fun to make and I guess some people loved it. Right. <laughs> now, Harvey, I want to get back to you in a second, but I'm going to pass this question to Ed. And maybe, Ed, you can touch on the songwriting for both songs, but which is the better record, Naked by Marcus Houston or Oh by Omarion? Because we talk about it all the time on here. Yeah, I was going to say, Harvey, as you probably don't know this, but I don't know how this became such a hot debate on the podcast. But, yes, <laughs> Naked versus O has been something that we've been talking about in the DMs for I don't know how long. I am a fan <laughs> of O. And I think I like it just because it sounds like a, I don't know why, something very Keith Sweatish about the structure of that song. So I don't know that that's why I prefer that one. O kind of does it for me. But one thing that I enjoy about both songs, and it's something that we don't really see as much in today's music, is there's a sensuality to them where the mm -hmm. lyrics don't get gratuitous. Like it, it gets you and you know what they're talking about but it right. doesn't get so on the nose with it. So talk a little bit about, number one, Mike, what your favorite might be, and about that songwriting and kind of taking something that's a very intimate, sensual moment, but not going overboard with it, because that's something that kind of grates on my nerves today. Yeah, well, I think to your first question, a favorite of the two, that's a really hard uh, question. They were both written really close to each other as far as the timeline, I think Naked might have been written first, and then, oh, I can't remember, but it was in the next, you know, within the same few weeks. So we were kind of in a good space. There was a couple other writers involved in those with us, and some of the other underdogs was Lil Steve Russell and Tank and Eric Dawkins and people like that. So our strategy on those songs was, of course, uh, we like to talk about relationships and uh love and physical side of relationships, however you want to say that on a podcast, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> we, we obviously that was on our minds, eight guys or seven guys or two guys, however many there were in the room at the time, sitting around talking about what's going on in our lives. 
so we like to put that into our records, uh, but we also like to say it in a way that was different. And we always were trying to think of clever ways to say it. And I think it might have started actually on how you're going to act like that. And we said a line like the fifth bar of the chorus, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but some ghetto karma sutra or something kind of interesting. Yeah. And, and we always try and say some something that maybe takes two different things that you would say and mash them together to make a new meaning of something or something that makes the listener maybe curious, like, what exactly is that? I don't know, but I, it sounds good and I like it. So we did a lot of that, and those records were, were a little ambiguous, and we were just right on the nose with everything that we said. Uh, and that was definitely done uh, because we didn't want to be so obvious and just throw the obligatory kind of sex words into the songs. It was also done because it was fun, to be honest. Like, we would sit in those studios, and I told you before, like, when we were doing our tag, we would sit in the studios just trying to entertain each other. And, like, what if we said this? And what if we said this? And then somebody would be like, oh, I love that. Let's say that. That's perfect. <laughs> and that's the stuff that made, I think, our songs different and maybe made our songs something that some people liked it was because we were having so much fun writing them and we knew when we were writing if we were entertaining each other and making each other laugh and smile and be like oh i love that then then listeners we hoped would do the same thing so that's kind of how we wrote songs right that's dope now with a handful of artists chris brown being one omarion and marcus houston being some others you worked on consecutive albums with these artists um, is that harder or, t or, or easier uh, since you've been around them for more than one album? And what's the approach when you're going in with them the second time around? I think it's easier when you're working with somebody on more than one occasion because by the time you do it a second time, you know who they are. You know, as an artist, what they're about, what their story is, where they're from, what they're into. You also know the technical stuff, like what's their range, what kind of songs suit their voice what kind of songs suit their brand and their image. So it's, it's a little less research and like studying that you're doing on a follow-up record. And then obviously a third record, you know it even better. On the first record, we would always like to really be smart about the songs we were writing because we want to write songs that were relevant to that artist. And when you're writing songs, you try and make things that the artist can sing about that are true or that they can react to or relate to because that way you get great vocal performances and that way those performances translate to listeners. Listeners know when the singers are singing something from the heart or something that's authentic. So we always wanted to go into sessions with artists knowing what they are talking about, where where are they in their career, where are they in a relationship, are they with somebody, do they have a kid, do they have a, just a bad breakup, or did they lose someone they love? There's a lot of things we would just look into before we started writing random songs. So uh, I think that is the reason later records are easier uh what was the second part of your question um what's the approach when you're working with them the second time around are you trying to outdo what you did on the first one are you trying to yeah. bring different subject matters to the table i think every time we go into the studio with an artist we're trying to outdo not only what we did with them last time but what we did on our last week's work or our last session or our last song so on a second record you obviously know the artist better, you know who they are, but you also have a bar of what you did last record and you're trying to trying to beat that. You're trying to give them the next best song. And every time I go into the studio with an artist, my goal is always to try and give them the best song they've ever had and give them the best vocal performance that they've ever recorded. So when the fans or their, their 
followers listen to this music, they're like, oh my gosh, this artist sounds better than I've ever heard them. That's always my goal. So I think that's the case when you're doing a follow-up record for sure. Absolutely. Now, Harvey, during this segment of the podcast, we want to highlight some of the records that you've done uh, or some of our personal favorites. Ed, what do you have for Harvey? See, I was going into this going one way, but that story Harvey just told me just reminded me of something else. One song I love, I as many of our listeners know, I love Hood Monica. So I was going to talk about <laughs> the song that they did, Sideline Ho, because it's just hilarious. <laughs> However, this story that he just gave about being able to tap into an artist and their experience reminded me of a song I completely forgot about until just now, and that is Ruben's Sorry 2004. And I've got this crazy story behind this song. Now, most of our listeners would remember when Beyonce dropped the Lemonade album and had that song called Sorry. So I'm sitting at my office, my former place of employment, and I'm in an office full of women. And they're playing Sorry, the Beyonce song. Oh, well, that, I can't remember how the song goes. And they're bouncing around the office to it. And I'm like, Sorry? That's not even the best song name, sorry. The best song name, sorry, is by Ruben Stutter, sorry, 2004. Now, if you have been in an office or room or section with a bunch of women who are Beyonce stands, that beehive stung my butt for like 20 minutes that I dared say that there was a sorry song better than Beyonce. But I'm standing by it, sorry, 2004. In 2019, it's still that heat. So, yes, that's my pick. <laughs> That's Harvey, give us some I love back- it. Give- Harvey, give us some background on that song. Well, that is a good song. That uh, is a good story of how that song came about. We had Ruben in for that week. I think he had just come off Idol pretty recently. Maybe, yeah, I think he had. I'm not sure if that was his first record or second record. Do you guys remember if that was his first? I think that was, that his, was his first because the. The other one was like the the um, Luther cover of Superstar, so right, that might have right. been his first like original joint. Yeah, perfect. So yeah, he had just come off Idol, and he came to the studio, and we were just trying to get to know him, and he was just like this lovable guy, and so we were trying to write songs that gave him a little bit of edge, but also played or leaned into his lovable teddy bear side. And that's just really what we got from spending time with him and getting to know him. And uh, we had produced a song for him on American Idol. I think it maybe even was that Luther song or a song that he sang uh, for his final song. So we did know him a little bit, but we always felt like on Idol, we could never really give him any edge at all because it was so, um, I don't know the best word, but it was, you had to stay a little bit middle of the road, a little bit more mm-hmm. generic for the TV show. So once we got our, our hands on him in the studio, we're like, okay, now we're going to give Ruben some real records and we're really excited. <laughs> so when mm-hmm. Sorry 2004 came up as a concept, we just thought it really fit him and some of the lyrics in that song were kind of perfectly suited for his personality and kind of the way he carried himself and the way that he had told us he was in different relationships at the time. So um, I remember exactly how that song started. I remember where we were sitting and I remember playing it for the first time and how excited we were when he started singing it. And I also remember playing it for Clive uh, and first listened in his bungalow. He heard it and he said, I love it. This is amazing. This is perfect how Ruben should be. And it was after we recorded a couple other songs with Ruben as well. And I don't think this song was on Ruben's, Ruben's album, but 
I have a copy of it. I should play it for you guys. I think you'd like it. Or maybe it did come out, but it was called Coming Off Soft. I don't know. Have you guys ever heard that song by Ruben Stutter? Uh, I don't remember that one. I don't know if that came out. It probably didn't come out, but that was a song we wrote after meeting with Clive. And Clive told us, he said, you guys, you can't have Ruben coming off really soft. He's got to be more edgy. He's got to be more aggressive. And we just kept telling Clive, we said, Clive, Ruben is not really that edgy. So we wrote this song called Coming Off Soft, and it is such a good song. I, I wish it had come out, but uh, Sorry 2004 came out instead, and I, I'm pretty happy with that one. Same. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Harvey, I was going to bring up a couple of records. Um, on that Omarion 21 album, you guys did three records on there, and that was like one of the best one, two, three punches I've heard in a while, just that sexy midnight and do it. But I'm going to ask about a record because uh, one of our readers, Ian Evans, he's a huge fan of yours as well, and he really wanted me to ask about the Tony Braxton record, Why Won't You Love Me? Because that song, I don't care if anyone's going to call me soft, I'm listening to that, and I'm crying along <laughs> to that song. <laughs> well, that's funny. That's Yeah, I mean, that was a great project. I really loved working with Tony, and I'd had a lot of history with her uh, doing He Wasn't Man Enough for me, uh, co-writing that with Rodney and the Dark Child guys, uh, I don't remember, maybe 98. So I've known Tony for a while. And when we had the opportunity to work with her on this record, it was the same thing. We were just trying to come up with real songs that were relevant for her. And I knew her voice at that point. We'd done some stuff with her uh, previously. So I was just trying to find things that rang true for her and also were things that she could really, really dig into with her vocals. She's such an amazing singer. Nice. And... Ed, um, recently you ranked Tank's discography, and I guess to no surprise, Sex, Love, and Pain came at number one. That's your favorite. What do you love about that project? Man, I think that, and I talked about this in the ranking, that hands down, I think most fans would agree that that is his most consistent work to date. And it was able to marry not only his great voice, because he has a great voice, but also a great concept. And that's why that project, we're out 10 years out, man, I'm old. But the point is that <laughs> record has endured the past 10 years and it became his defining work. Talk to us a little bit about your work on Sex, Love, and Pain. And along with that, TGT was something that fans got very excited about as well coming off of that with Tyrese and Genuine coming together and maybe what that project could have been with that kind of Sex, Love, and Pain direction with it. Tell me some of the songs on Sex, Love, and Pain, because I can't remember the exact titles. Or Do you remember any of them that I had worked on on that album? Uh, well, wedding you know, song the gold st- yeah, wedding the gold song. standard is Please Don't Go. Yeah, we got Heartbreaker. Oh, yeah. Wedding yeah. Song is a great song, too. I love Wedding Song. It's so fun. So fun. Yeah. I think um, Tank is one of the most talented guys that I've been around. He's... Uh, He's got the whole package, songwriting, playing piano. He's funny. He's an amazing singer. Like he plays sports. He just makes you mad. He's so good at everything. So <laughs> that was when we kind of first started being around Tank. It was around 2008, I think, 2007, somewhere in there. And he came to our building. Um, I think he was on Blackground Records at the time, possibly, or maybe just finishing his deal there. And... Uh, he was just trying to find a new new direction and trying to find new people to collaborate with. And I think Tank had done a lot of his production by himself 
which mm-hmm. I mean, he very well could because he's that good. Uh, so we were very fortunate that he came around the building and, and we got a chance to work on that record because, like I said, he can do he can do it from the top to the bottom all by himself. But with that one, we just hit a good 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 note together. You know, he brought what he brought, we brought what we brought, and it resulted in what I think are some really cool songs. Like you said, good concepts, and that was something that we really focused on with the underdogs. We would have a track a lot of times, and we would be thinking what the track made us feel or or as I said, where is the artist in their career? What are they going through? How are we going to encapsulate that in a concept, in a song? And we usually start with a title. And a lot of people don't work that way. They start in the verse and they write through songs, verse, B section, and then they get to the chorus and figure out what it is. But for us, everything really started with usually the chord progression and the concept. And somebody would pop off a concept. And I think wedding song, somebody's like humming the wedding song da, 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 da. and I think we actually ended up putting that in the background of that song somewhere in the track mm-hmm. that's just kind of how those songs popped off it was somebody came up with a cool kind what if we wrote a song about this and we said this in this kind of way and then everybody would get excited say, yeah that's it let's go down that road so that's uh that was one of the cool things about having Tank in the building he was so creative so talented and he could pretty much do anything All right. Now, Harvey, I got to ask, as a producer, obviously Tank has gone on to do different things, different sounds. Right now he's working on that trap sound that everyone's doing in his own way. He's kind of fused it with R&B, which our readers and our our audience, some love it, some wish he went back to that sex, love, and pain sound that you guys had worked on. As, you know, a friend and a producer, how do you manage that? Because I'm sure you have some ideas for what Tank should do as well, right? I have ideas on what everybody should do because <laughs> I think that's <laughs> right. <awesome. laughs> but uh, as an artist, you know, Tank is prolific. He can, like I said, he can do it all. Um, so I don't really contend to know what he should do as an artist. I feel like he can do, at one point he was doing piano and vocal only, and I thought that was incredible. And then he was doing real R&B, and I thought that was incredible. So I think if he's focused on trap and R&B, I'm sure he'll figure out how to make it really special and unique, because as soon as Tank sings on something to me, it's special. And musically, he's on another plane than most people, just piano playing, chord progression-wise. He's, he's just really somewhere else. So if he can figure out how to fuse those things together, I'm sure it'll be really great. But uh I've always been a fan. I'll continue to be one. Right. Now, Harvey, we got to ask about some songs or albums that didn't come out. Luckily for us, Ed, TGT did come out, and we're still wishing and hoping for a second one. But, Harvey, are there any projects or songs you mentioned, the Ruben Studdard record um, earlier? Are there any records that you wish came out that are still in the vault? Like, I know a lot of fans, um, especially on our side, have been asking about the Glenn Lewis project that you guys worked on back in, I think, 2007 oh. or eight. Oh, I love that project. It didn't come out, did it? No. no. Oh, the music in there, you guys, you would love it. It's so good. It is so good. There's a few of those, though. We did some Mary J. Blige records. I think a couple came out, a couple didn't. Um, there's one or two really cool Jennifer Hudson songs that didn't come out. There's just... Oh, there's a couple of Chris Brown songs that are amazing. At some point, we have to pull these songs together and see if the artists will let us put them out. Cause there's so many really, really good songs and great performances by a lot of really cool artists. Agreed. 
but on the flip side, I know currently you've been working in, you know, on film, working on your own as well. Um, Ed, uh, I think you had some questions about that. Yeah, I love that. One thing that we haven't really had on the podcast is someone who has had a lot of experience, not only in the studio as far as creating albums, but scoring films as well. Tell us a little bit about your work in that arena and how it differs for scoring a film as opposed to putting together a body of work as an album. It is different. Uh, having done albums and song production for you know, 30 years or 25 years now, it's, it's something I love to do. But the challenge of working in film and television is really unique because there's so many different stakeholders. There's the director and producer and music supervisor and head of music at the studio. So there's a lot of people that you're collaborating with and working with on the music team to try and make the music what it is. So it's less of an individual sport, more of a team sport, I think is a good way to look at it. Uh, and it's also a lot of different genres where generally I was doing mostly R&B and some pop music. Now on film and TV, I'm doing everything big band, jazz, classical, country you know i did an animated film called sing and there was i think 67 pieces of music in that film of all different genres and so for me that's a great challenge and i get to bring my record making experience to the table and all the years of making r&b and pop records and and try and make film music that sounds contemporary and relevant and exciting for kind of young audiences because the film studios and a lot of directors music is not their first love or it's not their area of expertise so when they bring me on board i try and bring that to the table i bring all my passion all my knowledge and experience and what makes great music what makes hit records i try and bring that to film and tv so i think that's something new and fresh and different for film and tv and i think right now the uh, timing we're in where there's music is the center of so much of our entertainment so much of our content that's, that's coming out i think it's a great time for musicians and producers to be working in film and television. I'm lucky I'm excited to be doing it. I was going to ask if you had kind of like a favorite project, because glad you mentioned Sing. That is just an incredible piece of work with the diversity and sounds. Is there one that stands out all these years? It's like, yep, that's the one I'm proud of. Uh, no, it's kind of like songs, it's kind of like records. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the work I've done, but I always feel like I can do better. And I always think like my next thing is going to be my greatest achievement, hopefully. And that's the way I like to try and work. But I'm proud of, um, you know, Straight Outta Compton was really special. Doing yeah. all that music was incredible and very challenging. Uh, you know, the Pitch Perfect movies were unique and different in their own way and a lot of fun. And uh, I think my most exciting project is my upcoming project, which Hopefully you guys will appreciate. So I'm producing uh, the biopic about Aretha Franklin and her life, which is coming out next year. And of course, I'll be producing all the music as well. But that's something I'm really excited about because the story is incredible. The music is amazing. And, you know, of course, Aretha's iconic. She's going to be played by Jennifer Hudson. So I think these new vocals and new versions of these songs are going to be really, really special. And I can't wait to share them with everybody. I can't right. wait for that one. I don't know if you've seen the Aretha Franklin documentary. I think Spike Lee had a hand in it. I checked that out last weekend. Kyle, that's why yeah. I missed the podcast last week. My bad, dog. But I was there checking <laughs> that out, and it was incredible. One of my favorite movies of the year so far. So looking forward yeah. to that one. So can't wait to see that in J-Hud and action there. Yeah, I think uh, I think you guys will love it. It's going to be really special. 
Nice, nice. Now, Harvey, just got a couple more questions here. We're almost out of time, but you know, I was looking online as well, and it looks like you guys have done some work overseas in the K-pop world. Um, can you just talk about the difference and and how you approach production, and maybe what the expectations are from executives in the K-pop world versus you know the U.S. and, and Canada? Yeah, I think in in Korea they really love American music and they love American production, which is great because I've been able to go over there and produce quite a few songs for the uh, K-pop market. But I think I find them to like more action, more uh, excitement in their music, even in ballads. They want different sections. They want each musical section to be different. They like key changes. They like tempo, rhythm changes. Um, they just love a lot of excitement and variety in their music. And I think a lot of it has to do with their visuals. You know, they make such amazing videos and they're such incredible performers that I think they like to have that change up from section to section. So that's one of the biggest differences is just how you're writing and how you're producing music for the K-pop market. Also, they translate most of your verse and pre-chorus lyrics into Korean. So what you write in English maybe a lyric says, I'm driving down the street and my car listens to music and they translate it to the sky is blue and we love these flowers, you know? So it's just like, <laughs> it's very random how they do their verses. But when they get to the choruses, a lot of times they're singing those in English or they're you know, kind of doing half and half. So the choruses are really important. So we spend the majority of our time lyrically on the choruses and on the concepts, like what is going to be a concept that sticks with the K-pop audience? What's the chorus that's going to sound cool to them? So that's some of the differences. Um, and then I also think just the recording process is different. The writing process is different. We, we go to Seoul to do the records and spend time in Korea, which is just such a different energy great place great city uh, the people love music there that's one thing I, I really appreciate about about korea and being in seoul is the fans are true fans they're fanatical they stay outside the studio they wait for people to come and go so they can see who's going in the studio see if they can catch a glimpse of their favorite artist they buy multiple copies of the cds there because they have different artwork inside of them and they're just truly passionate about music so i, I really love the energy and i love working over there Man, I gotta move over there. They sound like me. <laughs> I still copy the place. CDs for the yard. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, Harvey. Last question, and this is actually a two-part question. Uh, number one, who are you in the studio working with? I know I saw you with Neil not too long ago, but number two, are you gonna have bridges on your new songs? Because let me tell you, Harvey, on these new R&B songs with the lack of bridges, it's making me sad. It's Kill driving me. me crazy, dog. No, it's killing me. No bridges, and they don't have any tags for us. So we got to keep these tags alive. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been uh, the last few weeks. I'm doing a musical for Netflix, Christmas musical. So that's involved some pretty oh, fun singers. Um, trying to think of some of the people that you would know in that. Um uh, I'm not sure all the great singers. I can't even think of them all, but there's some really good singers there. I'm doing Sing 2 for Universal, which is, again, another musical animated show. So that's, of course, got Reese Witherspoon and Scarlett Johansson singing there. So they're in the studio. Then I'm doing um, another movie with Sam Jackson, who's actually singing. You can really sing, by the way, when you guys get a chance to hear it. I think you'll appreciate really? it. Yeah, it's really fun. Great music. I won't let the cat out of the bag as to what movie it is yet, but it's a musical biopic, and he's he's doing great work on. 
uh, and then a couple artists, some new artists that I'm working with, and some up and coming people. But uh, I will make sure we have bridges and tags for you guys at all times. <laughs> That's why we love you. Keep it alive. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing oh, I would yeah. love to mention to you guys and to your listeners yeah. is just a couple months ago I was nominated and elected as the chairman of the Recording Academy so I'm really excited about some of the stuff we're doing there yeah I think your listeners may or may not know what's happened in the industry where songwriters and many other people in the industry aren't getting compensated properly for their intellectual property creation so the academy is doing great things in DC and trying to get legislation passed for for creators and songwriters and artists and producers. And then we're also doing great things in education, bringing music back into the schools, trying to make sure music is exposed to as many kids as we can. And finally, Music Cares, which is something that gives music, it gives money back to musicians and creators in need, whether they're uh, sick or injured or they lose their instrument in a fire or somebody's addicted to drugs. Last year, we gave away almost $8 million to people who needed it. So very passionate about the Recording Academy. And I think uh, anyone who appreciates music like you guys do or your fans do, I think uh, will understand and appreciate the Recording Academy for the great work that we're doing there, besides giving away Grammys. <laughs> <laughs> but that is that is huge news. I don't know if um it even resonates, but for those listening, that is some big news and for those who like to say as we like to say, we're keeping R and B alive, that is a huge step toward keeping the music we love alive. Yeah. Yes, it really is and the leadership in the academy is all new. There's a lot of really, really exciting people, people that are really passionate about a lot of different genres of music. Me, of course, R and B. I kept that quiet when I was running my election, but now I can talk about R&B all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, we have great leadership, and I think there's great things happening at the Academy, and it's going to really impact the, the music business, the music community, listeners, creators, everyone. So I'm really excited. I am, sure. too. We appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, Thank you. I appreciate what you guys are doing. You guys have always been super supportive. I always have heard from you guys. You've always popped up on, on my timeline, DMs, and everywhere else. So thank you guys for your support and for appreciating what we've done. It's It's been a journey. It's been so much fun. It's been like a lifetime of just enjoyment of creating great music. So what makes me the happiest is that people like you guys appreciate it and you like it and you take the time to, to acknowledge me means a lot. So thank you. Absolutely. So, Harvey, I appreciate you for joining us on the podcast. We'll always support everything you've got going on, especially now because we're finally going to see some support in the education system for music. So, Ed, the bridges are coming back. Don't you worry. But, Harvey, I appreciate, <laughs> yes. you, uh, appreciate you for joining us. And, you know, keep us posted on everything you've got going on. We'll be sure to highlight it. Always will. Thank you, guys. And, Ed, that was Harvey Mason, Jr., on the podcast. Ed, that's one of my favorite producers of all time, if you didn't know. Oh, I knew, and I was glad that we could do it, and I was glad I could join the conversation. It's been a minute since I've been on an interview. Oh, and before I get to that, let me clarify that, because I know there have been a couple of questions online. It's like, man, Ed, don't ever do the interviews anymore. What happened? It's cool, y'all. It's cool. So just to pull the curtain back just a little bit, if you give me some time, Kyle, the way we used to do Pretty much our recordings is, first of all, poor Kyle has to manage three different guys, your boy Kyle and Tom, on three different areas of this continent. So first, kind of getting us all together can kind of be tough. And then we would usually record on the weekends. However, with our commitment to give more 
voices to some of your favorite artists and producers. Sometimes we have to kind of work with their schedule. So we might be recording on a Wednesday night or it might be a Tuesday night or it might be some other crazy time. So because of that, sometimes you don't get all three of us in one spot. But hey, got to give y'all your favorite artists, favorite producers. So that's why we do what we do for you. And I was glad to have my man Harvey on because great convo with him. Yeah. Plus, Ed, let's be honest, and Montrez Jones, our boy, can can vouch for this. He, he probably likes listening to us talk more than the guests anyway. <laughs> well, what I, what can I say? We set a high bar, dog. I'm just kidding. Uh, man, so shout-outs to Harvey. And, uh, Ed, can we get into the soul back track of the day? Certainly. I'm going to hook you up with this one. Uh, to celebrate Missy Elliott's VMA performance, can we go with the song All In My Grill by Missy? Oh, yes, we can. It features my girl, of course, Miss Nicole Ray, and also yep. my man Big Boy from Outcast. One of my favorite Missy songs ever. A little bit more R&B flavored, so we didn't get to hear that one on MTV. However, still one of my favorite tracks to this day. To this day. And Ed, actually, that's my favorite Missy album. Really? Yeah, the production, that dark production, I love it. Timbaland was... It might not be as unorthodox as what was to come, but man, that dark production throughout that whole album, Hot Boy, um, what else was on there? She's a B-word. All those yep, songs, the song with Juvenile. Man, that production was dope. It was at the time, and I can speak to that time when it came out, it kind of caught people off guard because they were always used to being kind of futuristic sounding, but that dark sound was kind of weird. In a good way. But even at the time, I was kind of like, I like this. I don't know if I love this. But it has really grown on me over time. There's a song called You Don't Know with Lil Mo. Where Missy and yep. Lil Mo are like arguing over this dude. It's one of my favorite songs ever. It is so hilarious. That song made yep. me a Lil Mo fan. And Crazy Feelings with Beyonce. That's a dope one too. Yep. Oh, so. my girl Missy. How can you hate on the catalog, man? Legend. Yep, legend indeed. Ed, but speaking of legends, you're the play it please legend. Can we get into the play it please? Oh yes, we're going to look, grab your popcorn if you haven't eaten it up already from Harvey because we got some stuff to get into. Well, Ed, apparently you got to play it please from Cassandra for your tank hate, but we've already addressed that so we can move forward. Well, let's move on. <laughs> I've done enough of that. All right, uh, where do we begin? Uh, I, I found this interesting. Uh, the rapper Chief Keef. Unfortunately. Um, apparently he has 10 kids from 10 different baby mamas. That's impressive. What? What? How yeah. is that possible? Well, I know how it's possible, but good Lord. So, <laughs> I thought that was interesting. But let's Little get into play, the real the, play. Of- <laughs> the only Keef we acknowledge around here is Sweat. So, get him out of here. All right. Uh, let's get into the real stuff here. Uh, can we give a play a please to 50 Cent? Oh, man. I know where this is going. Well, it's it's a two-part thing. Uh, first and foremost, he tweet out, tweeted out recently that he thinks Chris Brown is better than Michael Jackson now because Michael Jackson was touching little boys, and that got the internet mad. <laughs> first of all, 50 is just being 50. He knows what to do to stir the pot up. He loves to kick the hornet's nest. So that's 50 being 50. 50 can't even name five Chris Brown songs. I promise you. 
And the second part of this play a please, uh, well let's be nice first, Trey Song's Ready album celebrated its 10 year anniversary recently, Trey's best album, but no, 50, thought it was, 50 thought it was a brilliant idea to put Trey on the theme song of Power and he removed Joe from that song and the internet was pissed, Ed. Well, I live with a gigantic power fan in my house. My wife loves that show. So we turned it on last week. And I hear Trey songs neighing all over this stuff. I was like, what in the world is this? It was ridiculous. And then, like, the beat is distorted. It's I don't understand the mentality of changing up something that wasn't broken in the last season. Now, I know people will say, oh, well, they changed up the song to a different world at the last season. Yeah, but Boys and Men ain't Dre songs player, so calm down with that. I didn't like it, but the internet really didn't like it, and they went ballistic over it. I mean, I think they kind of went a little overboard. My question was, what happened to Joe? I feel like there's a story there. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, Trey Songs did take it to social media to say the response, the negative response, it's making him sad. So, poor Trigger. <laughs> poor Trigger. You did your best, dog, but that Joe theme song was a hard act to follow. And unfortunately, he didn't measure up. I'm hearing that 50 might change it back. I haven't watched Power this, epi- this week yet. I'll do that after we finish wrapping up this recording. So maybe they changed it back. Maybe they didn't. Maybe y'all should just watch the show and stop arguing about the theme song. I would suggest that first and foremost. <laughs> uh, you know, we talk how we talk about how all press is good press. Does that count for Trigger this time around? Oh, no. Poor Trey. I'm so glad that he didn't have any, a project out. Because can you imagine trying to promote something new in the middle of that storm? It'd be wrecked. <laughs> the whole all press is good press. Obviously, you don't know anything about the press if you think that's the case. Uh, damn. Uh, got to more press news for you, Ed. Uh, Bobby Brown's sister went on social media. And, Ed, first of all, if anyone types in all capitals in their caption, that's already bad news. But she pretty much said that Bobby Brown got hit by a car and that, you know, the family needs to look and take care of Bobby more because no one should be getting hit by a car. And then uh, footage came out like the next day and Bobby Brown was walking fine and he said that was all fake. Ed, what the hell is going on? Oh my god. I don't understand. What is with these celebrities and their kids going on social media while and out? The last time I was on a podcast with y'all, you had Brian McKnight's kids acting up. Now we got this. I wish everybody would just... Look, social media is fun. I like the memes. I like hanging out with fans. I like discussing music. I like sometimes even chatting with artists. But this whole putting your dirty laundry, your family's dirty laundry out there is too much for me. Y'all need some a new hobby that doesn't involve sticking your thumbs on a phone to talk drama. So ridiculous. <laughs> right. Uh, got another, Ed. We have a lot of player pleases here. Uh, this one I think you'll find fairly entertaining. Can we give a quick shout out to Team Childish Gambino? Oh, no, we can't because I know where this is going. No, we can't. Uh, so I came across a tweet where Team Childish Gambino, that I guess is his fan base, his fan page, wrote, 
I'm not sure if it's just me, but I think Childish Gambino's version of So Into You is better than Tamiya's. Ed? Oh, it's just you, player. I heard that old dry version of Tamiya's song. Why are we still hyping it up like it was good? I feel like when it dropped and everybody was going crazy, there were two people trying to talk sense in everybody. Me and DJ Soulchild. We were like, what? What are y'all hearing? Like, this is, it's okay at best. But better than a classic Tamiya song? Please have a stadium of seats because we are not here for this. <laughs> yeah, I think Childish Gambino did better in Lion King than he, than he did on that song. And even that's kind of pushing it. Did you see Lion King? I did. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about that another time because I think the beehive is lurking right now. So we're going to have to oh, skip on ahead. <laughs> I've been stung enough about that one. Oh, man. And then the last player, please, Ed. We talked about this last week, me and Tom, about Dallas Austin, who we are planning to get on the Sobek podcast. And that was even before he went nuts on social media and told all the stories from the 90s. Last week, he was trashing boys to men. And uh, I don't think we're getting Sean Stockman anymore because of that, Ed. Uh, <laughs> but Again, week, I will withhold comment on Sean Stockman. I love him, but nah, we'll save that for a true Hollywood story another time. This is true. But Ed, this week, he commented on Brandy and Monica's alleged beef from the 90s. And before you get into what you're going to go into, I actually spoke to a producer yesterday actually a good friend of ours i'm not going to say who and Don't he confirmed say who. that this was all true every single thing that dallas said was true well Ed, go ahead and enlighten our listeners to what happened because i already knew it was true but go ahead so if you remember in the 90s and maybe you can speak on it better than i can but there's always been this like rivalry that the media created between brandy and monica and then when the boy is mine came out you know it played to what the media was trying to set up and everyone went crazy over it the song is a modern day classic now people love it and that tension um you know they actually did a really good job of it in the music video as well it seemed like they actually had beef they went on ahead and performed it at the VMAs, I believe. I believe it was the VMAs, and people loved that. That was actually like their only performance of it ever, uh, until I guess ten years ago or so when they released "It Belong." It all belongs to me, which I don't yep. think anyone remembers that record. Um, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> but Dallas did an interview, and he pretty much just said during the "Boy Is Mine" era. That tension was real, and apparently Brandy was acting too Hollywood around Monica. Monica, being straight from the A, took exception to it, <laughs> and I guess does what all Southerners do. They rely on their fists to do the talking, and I guess Brandy got hit. Well, the funny thing about all of this is everybody's like, I can't believe that Monica would pop off on Brandy. Well, I don't know what Monica y'all been listening to for the past, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. Because the one I remember used to just basically tell y'all, I'm a rowdy chick. Sometimes I got to fight because my mouth too slick. She tells y'all, do not come at Miss Monica Arnold. It's hilarious to me. But yeah, back in the day, there was this rivalry because 
And again, this is something that we're starting to see now play out with. If you look at the Cardi B, Nicki Minaj thing, it was like this with Prince and Michael Jackson. It was like this with Brandy and Monica. You had to choose. You couldn't like both. You had to pick one and the one you picked, you had to hate the other. So you had Monica stands on one side, Brandy stands on other. And the media ran with that. And because of that, we started to have this whole boy's mind thing. And even when that came out, there was all this discussion about they really hate each other and they're going to see it come through in the song. And it was such a big hype for the video and the way they were playing against each other in the video. And I remember people dissecting the video saying, oh, did you see the way that Monica rolled her eyes? That was real. And it's hilarious because as much as we say how things have changed, no, y'all still as petty as y'all were in 1998. Y'all just have Twitter now to talk about how petty you are. But it's hilarious. And yes, I have heard, just like our producer friend, that that was straight up real. And Monica is a rowdy chick. Sometimes she got to fight because her mouth too slick. And that Brandy caught one. I don't know the extent of it, but this is a story that's long been out there. Just like the boys to men story from last week. That's another one that we were talking about in the cipher. Again, that story's long been out there. It's not new. I think it's hilarious that Dallas is bringing all this back because it's kind of enlightening for a new generation of fans. But if you know, you know. Ain't new to us. <laughs> well, Ed, I went back and did some Wikipedia research, as I always do. Also brought in YouTube this time around. Now, okay. as I mentioned earlier, It All Belongs to Me came out i think in 2012 that was on monica's horrible new life album but we don't have to get I did into not that, like album. that album no. um so they were cool at that time and, and it seemed like there was one interview i think with angie martinez where monica brought up that incident of that fight and if you remember back in the 90s brandy was considered america's sweetheart so her she team was. cleaned up that rumor and just acted like it was a rumor so they can move on from it so Monica brought it back up during promo time for New Life, and I think that's why they fight on social media all the time now. But Ed, <laughs> more importantly than that, I actually went back and rewatched their performance of The Boy Is Mine. And there is one part in the performance where Brandy pretty much gives Monica the million-dollar dream, the Taz mission, or otherwise known as the sleeper hold. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I remember this. Oh my goodness. So. Oh my goodness. He said he gave her the task mission. I am done for the evening. <laughs> Brandy is no punk herself. <laughs> I guess, but it's so funny because you're right. Back then, and that's where a lot of, I remember a lot of my female friends were Teen Monica because it's funny. Brandy is a lot like Beyonce today. Well, not to the level, but a lot of people don't like Beyonce because they feel like she's overexposed. Everybody hypes her. She's on everything. And that was definitely Brandy in the late 90s who had the TV show. She had the Cinderella movie. She had songs everywhere. She was America's sweetheart. And people don't like the favorites. They like the underdogs. And then you had Monica, who was this street chick who kept it hood, you know, kick down your doors and smack your chick. Man, I love that song. I'm just going to quote it all day. So you had this hood chick versus this Hollywood kind of manufactured girl. And that's where the drama came from. And yep, a lot of people thought poor Brandy was fake. Monica was real. And when it came to boys' mind, people wanted real hands thrown. 
What a fun time the 90s were. So I guess we're going to have to wait for Dallas to do another uh, interview so we can hear more untold 90s stories. Or maybe we'll just bring him on this podcast and we'll just start with the question, tell us all you know about the 90s. Yes. And, oh, there are so many stories that I want confirmed. Did Bobby Brown and Keith Sweat really fight in the back of the hotel? Like, that's the one I want to know. I don't think you'll be getting the, the answer to that one, unfortunately, Ed. Ugh. One day I will get the truth. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, Ed, what's going on with SoInStereo.com? Man, player, it's been a busy, busy week, especially on the hip-hop end. So check out Soul and Stereo if you missed it. I've got a new edition of Love Letters, which I know my boy Kyle loves. I want one person ask a question. If a relationship can be successful if it started from an affair. Well, what do you think? So I go all up in that, and along with some other questions on Love Letters. But on the music end... For my hip-hop fans who are fans of Lupe Fiasco, we rank his entire discography. We've got a review of Missy's EP. I don't usually review EPs, but had to show Missy some love, so check that out. Also a review of Common's new album, Let Love. A lot of people like it. I thought it was alright, so check out my thoughts on that. And by the time this runs, my man Alex Goodwin, who contributes a lot to our posts, fan of the podcast and a member of the Soul and Serial Cypher, Alex and I got together to rank the 25 best Jagged Edge songs. So I think a lot of y'all will like this one. That'll be out probably by the time this posts. Sounds good. So Ed, I think that's it for this week's podcast. We'll see what we've got going on next week. Hopefully we can have you and Tom back together. Um, If not, we'll figure it out. But I guess, Ed, that's it. So we'll see you next week. Next week, I'm going to be listening to more Monica songs, listening to her cuss out people, because she's my favorite. <laughs> and I guess I'll have to listen to Brandy to see if she threw any shade at Brand- at Monica back. Probably. This is how we live. They've been doing it for 20 years. It ain't new. Dallas Austin be telling the truth. So are Brandy and Monica Sididi? <laughs> I don't even one of them is. Oh, one of them is. Trust me, there are many people who know what that means, and they can guess which one is the Diddy. So, all right, I'm gonna leave that there. All right, Ed, we're out of here. All right.